this. <laughs> These are my brothers. You can jam with play. them. Yeah. This All right. I could play. That's yeah. good. Clearly, we were having a guitar talk. <laughs> the guitar guys were on before the movie guys talking about music. But uh, now we're shifting gears to the movie guys. Yeah. Everybody, Paul Preston here uh, with another TMG interview. We're taking the name TMG from TMZ, the movie guys TMG. And now we'll do interviews that actually mean something, a little substantial. Uh, for the show, I'm welcoming an actor with a remarkable... Oh, and Karen is here. I'm here. Hello. Last minute addition to the interview. Mm-hmm. Good to have you. I'm excited. Um, but we're uh, having a, an actor with a remarkable career in TV and film that includes projects like The Big Lebowski, True Grit 2010, and the television show Prison Break. I'm excited to get into what makes a long livelihood in TV and film, although I have imagine it has something to do with starting with a rich stage career. Please welcome mm-hmm. Leon Russo. <laughs> oh, my. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, huge applause. Right. Uh, you started on stage, yeah? Uh, yeah, I did. I uh, I was uh, I was in college, and I was asked. I, I broke my ankle, and was asked to play a character in an old comedy called The Solid Gold Cadillac, who was an athlete with a broken ankle. Typecasting? And <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you might say. Did you think well, I have to break my ankle every time I want a part? <laughs> well, what happened was I got bitten by the bug, really? and uh, and the director then asked me to do Death of a Salesman and play Biff. So I did that, and uh, the local professional company, no one remembers, but back in the 60s and 70s, virtually every city of any size had a a resident theater company and they would uh, hire actors from New York and Los Angeles and they would come in and they would do a season uh, eight plays that the actors the same actors would come and do the season right wow you that'd would, be a great gig you would sign on for for uh, all the various roles that you would play in each show because I grew and up in uh, Oneonta New York which is upstate in, mm-hmm. in New York and we they would bring up it's three hours away. They'd bring up people for a show, right? But not for a season. That would be something. Uh, d- yes, you could make a living doing this. People <laughs> did uh, acting, make a living acting <laughs> in the old days. Heard but, but I went to work uh, and was the low man on the totem pole. I made fifteen dollars a week, and uh, I did that for about three years. And uh, by that time, I knew that I was going to have to do something about the draft. That's another thing we used to have. Ah, that's right. That every young man had to serve in the army unless your name was Trump. Uh, <laughs> and uh, may I just say to all the actors out there who are going, "Wow, I don't have a, a new car. My car is, you know, three years old." This is paying your dues, ladies and gentlemen. Fifteen dollars a, 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 a week, right? Yeah. yeah, that's. And then the older character actors got me drunk one <laughs> night, and uh, I was so hungover. I'd never had a hangover before, and. Uh, uh, I was trying to go to work on the bus, and I kept getting sick. But it, even when there was nothing left in me, I kept getting sick. <laughs> and so I finally had to call and go, I'm not going to be there. And the uh, managing director called me in and dressed me down and then said he was going to dock me like $10 or something. And I said, I only make 15 And he went, What? <laughs> and promptly raised my salary to 45. There you oh, go. So I thought I was in heaven. Hi. So I, I did that for uh, those three years. And then when the draft came up, I, I was told that I, uh, that I, I was going to go to drama school. And I was told that I, if I went to drama school, it was like going to automotive mechanics school because they didn't offer a degree. I couldn't uh, get a deferment. Ah, from the draft. Right. Uh, so yeah. I draft said, come at me, you know what I would do? Break another ankle. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, what do I do? And they said, well, you could you could join the Army. And I went, no, 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 that's three years. That's not two. And uh, so they said, well, you can volunteer for the draft. And I said, what's that? And they just took my number and put it first. And uh, so I did my two years, got out in Germany. Ooh. And... Thank you, by the way, as much as I goofed about the uh, ankle. Anyone who served. Yeah, that's, I think that's so brave. <laughs> I mean, but I went, to, uh, I, I went across the water to, uh, to England and auditioned for the Royal Academy. And uh, I got in. But when I went there, I discovered that there was a new school that had Laurence Olivier, Peter Brook, Peter Hall, all these idols of mine on the board. 
And so I auditioned for them too, and I wound up going to it. It was called the London Drama Center. It's now the theater department of the University of London. So I did two years there, came back, went to the same theater that I'd been at before. <laughs> An agent saw me there, brought me to New York, and uh, uh, I was uh, understudying Ian McKellen in about uh, three months. That is fantastic. <coughs> wow. So I got very lucky. Yeah. yeah. Well, Karen and I are going to London for the first time next yes. month. Mm-hmm. McKellen's uh, doing his swan song in Shakespeare there now. King oh, Lear. Uh, $225 a ticket. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. It's like, I want to go, but 225 a ticket. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the legend in his final outing in Shakespeare, you know. But right. I just I don't so think we can pull it off. Being it's, that you were understudying, you get to see him perform all the time. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And... I remember, I, I was uh, probably all of 24, Ian was around 27, 28, and uh, after the first preview, he uh, got an applause on his exit, and he came out and he went uh, to the director, I can kill that exit applause if you like, <gasps> and the next night, he just changed the timing ever so slightly, and no one applauded. You mean and when I, he left the stage, but the story is still continuing, not his, right? Is that what you're talking about? Or, uh, like at the end of the act, you mean? At the end of his, his final exit, oh. as okay. opposed so to not the, end the of bows. The oh, no, no. Right, no. so wow. he, not the curtain call. Wow, and he, so he, able to, he manipulated the crowd. Uh, right, wow, that's pretty and cool. I went, how can, how can you be that young and know that much? Wow. <laughs> and um, it was Ian McKellen, Ian McShane, and one of the great, great, great actresses ever, uh, Dame Eileen Atkins who you might, might know from The Dresser. Uh, With Tom Courtney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, uh, she had taken over for Judy Dench, who had done it with the two boys in London. Wow. And uh, so that was how I got started. And <laughs> because of equity at the time, uh, w- they were going to play for uh, seven weeks, and then we would take over if, we were, if there was a run. Was those of us who were understudying. And of course, what happened was that uh, another equity problem came up where they didn't like the Brits coming over at all. Oh. So we wound up having to close the show in about two weeks. Uh, well, you were in, oh, but they didn't want the British leads. You could have come and done it as an American, yes. as the understudy. Yeah, but it, there was just a huge oh. resentment. A huge resentment uh, mm-hmm. uh, to, for the, the English coming over and That's taking over Broadway. And, right. Okay. Uh, and, you know, that s- sort of thing goes on all the time. Where, Absolutely. Can where we go to the West End? Can American actors do the West End without the, problems? You have to prove that you are essential to the show. The, uh, our criteria, criteria is that uh, if uh, you seem artistically essential to the show, you can come over. Theirs is if you seem economically essential to the show. So oh. only stars mm-hmm. can go right. to London. Because they're going to bring in that box office. Right. Oh, and, that makes sense. And so that was what, the, that was what all the uh, hullabaloo was about, was that, uh, that there's an inequity there that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Where did you, uh, where were you born? Did, did, did all this seem far-fetched or did it seem like it's attainable? Some people start in the middle of a you know, a desert right. town or in the middle of the woods or something, and they see something like the trajectory your career had as mm-hmm. unattainable. How about you? I was, uh, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I might have been the last kid to be able to live a, a sort of Huckleberry Finn kind of life because it's on a river and there were caves and all that sort of thing with nature, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, my father died when I was very young, and my mother was quite ill. So I wound up in, um, uh, people called it an orphanage, but it was a, 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 a charitable institution that the Methodist Church had put together. And I spent three years there. Then my mother was afraid that uh, she might die and we'd be left there. So my sister and I came to California, and we uh, lived with an aunt and uncle. Then they had health problems. So we wound up going back to Arkansas and then somehow wound up in Memphis. Uh-huh. And uh, 
I don't know. There was a whole world of us who, when we saw James Dean, wanted to be James Dean, you know. That meant, I guess, you'd be a movie star, sort of, that's a byproduct of being James Dean. Right? You just wanted to be we James just, Dean, not just, any of his characters. We just thought he was cool. That's awesome. Know? Okay. And uh, uh, so I always had an interest in it. But everything changed for me uh, when I began to read. And we moved around so much that I had trouble making friends, so I would read. And I became fascinated uh, with the idea of being a novelist. And uh, that's what I thought that I was going to do. But when I was offered the chance to act when I was in college, to come to this professional theater, there's something about 8 o'clock you have to do it. A novelist can put off even beginning (laughs) (laughs) forever. You're right. And also as an actor, uh, after about 11, 11.15 is the longest I think I've ever had to be on stage, it's over. Mm -hmm. You're able to put it away and feel like you've done it. Right. Unlike a novel. No. Mm. Doesn't work that way. No. And uh, and then it picks up where the story began, where I first started telling you about uh, about, uh, these professional people seeing me and so yeah. forth. So this whole decades career in theater, is there a, a dream role still for you? It's hard to say. I always thought that I wanted to do, that I, I deeply wanted to do King Lear. And I deeply wanted to do Samuel Beckett's Endgame. And I've done both of them now. Oh. And I just finished doing The Tempest, which was, uh, this is going to sound like heresy, but it's a much more difficult role than King Lear. And I didn't know that until I went to work on it. But uh, just the sheer energy output, the athleticism of... Uh, of uh, Prospero? Yeah, he, he is in the first four scenes, introduces all the characters, uh, but doesn't give them a chance to talk. He <laughs> talks nonstop. And the way that I do Shakespeare, it requires such rapidity that it's uh it's like running a marathon and uh uh so oddly enough as much as i wanted to play those other two parts i'm beginning to think prospero is probably the best uh, or at least the most challenging it's still out there for you. i oh, i just did it oh you just did it oh, i just did it. did it sorry i yeah, thought that's you what were saying, saying I, it was i was I thought you were saying I, I, I looked at it and I went, forget it. No, I was <laughs> running I, around the whole show. I was shocked to find out. I've been out doing this for decades. I want to sit back and be, you know, Theseus and just laugh at the root mechanicals all night. No, <laughs> I, I, I was just uh, shocked to find out that it was uh, that it was that difficult. You know, gotcha. But, because okay. Lear is so. I mean, they're all so, all those wonderful words, but you can it, it, the emotional logic of it is so clear that you just follow your nose. Whereas with uh, The Tempest, you have to really work your butt off to make it work. And, of course, I promptly went from that, uh, where I had pneumonia during the run, and it got very bizarre. (laughs) But within two weeks, I started work on what I'm doing now, and I look like this because uh, I'm playing what one of my wittier castmates calls... um, the Buddhist Gabby Hayes. <laughs> it's a, a, a farmhand uh, who th- either is or thinks he's the last cowboy. And um, so it's about as far from Shakespeare as you can get. And we're doing it out of doors in, uh, on a ranch. Oh, cool. In Sunland. And so people have to drive for 20 minutes to get there. And it's all about the droughts that are attacking California. So but, it's an original piece? But I, yes. Oh, cool. great. Okay. Uh, by a, a gentleman named Octavio Solis, wonderful playwright. And I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> but I, I, the Buddhist Gabby Hayes is a very good way of saying it but because he, uh, he can sort of see everything that's going on, but he's very old and he doesn't think straight. And, um, but is Zen about it? <laughs> yeah, well, because he can see the overall and all the other people can't. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, gradually he becomes kind of mythic. You're not really sure that he was there. Oh, cool. Which cool. is kind of fun to do. 
And uh, that's me up to date. Well, I'm going to well, jump yeah, even okay. further to the present because this Please is your do. new play you're doing. The new film, actually, should have mentioned at the top of the show, is called The Midnighters, brand new to uh, all number of formats. It's out there on Blu-ray and streaming on Amazon, also streaming on Vudu and Google Play and many other platforms. So you can go ahead and watch this uh, neo-noir film that uh, I saw last night, and we'll play a little clip from it here to get people up to date with your character. Wonderful. On your first visit to me each month, you fill out a report of all your activities from the previous month. Make sure it's accurate, legible, sign it. Whenever we have a scheduled supervision, you sign it on the sheet in the reception area, let the security guard know you're here. Whenever you enter the building, you're going to be searched. Come by yourself, don't bring friends, don't bring family. You're going to do your analysis, are you familiar with that? If you can't leave a sample in a timely fashion, it's grounds for arrest or revocation of your probation or parole. I'm going to be visiting you at your home and your job. It's my right to do so anytime, day or night. If you're arrested, there so won't be any more arrests. Look, it's a hard thing to get your head around, you understand? I think so. 35 years. It's a long time. Most guys looking at that kind of time, they never get out. And the few that do, it's a very hard time readjusting. This is not 1978 anymore. I know. Now, of course, most of that scene was done by, what was the actor's name? Oh, he's great. a great friend of mine. The first time that I did King Lear, I didn't play Lear. I played Gloucester, and Larry played Lear. Huh. Uh, Larry. Is, uh, uh, his name is Larry Cedar. Larry Cedar, that's right. You may remember him as a character named Leon on uh, <laughs> uh, the series Deadwood. Uh, he's all over television. You can't miss Larry. Yeah, he certainly looked familiar. You know, it's, he's in the category of that guy. Right. right. It's that guy. That, which, I know that guy. Which is yeah. what I keep reading in the reviews I am. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but now you're the lead because well, it's just yeah. setting up your character who then we follow through the whole film just out of prison. And go ahead and tell us a little more about the, the plot. Oh, well, the plot is, um, uh, well, you, in my mind, you think that you're about to watch, uh, who is it that uh, in the Shawshank Redemption is let out of prison and can't Brooks. cope? Brooks, yeah. Right. From you, uh, James Whitmore, right? Right. Yeah. It looks yeah. like it's going to be that kind of thing if, if you made a whole film about that. And, uh, and I liken it to the, the neo-realist Italians who made all those things about poverty and old age and dislocation right after World War II. Rossellini and uh, De Sica and those people. But we sandbag the audience because it doesn't go there. That's where it <laughs> looks like it's going. But little by little, I realize I'm being stalked. And I'm being stalked by my son, who the last time I saw him, he was a toddler. And uh, he, uh, he's gotten himself in a bit of trouble. He's a, a cyber criminal, but he thinks that he can get himself out of trouble if he can rob a bank. And uh, he's connected with the Russian mafia, like our president. <laughs> and uh, and he, uh, I see that he's in over his head. And so I'm really getting involved in it because I want to have his back. And we, uh, the reason that they need me is that it's a huge vault, but inside the bank vault, is an old safe from the 1920s, and only I can open that's it. That's your specialty. Oh, that's the trick. And, uh, and, of course, I immediately go, why don't you just take the thing out of the safe and take it to your house, and you can do it as slowly as you like. Mm -hmm. And then they point out that there's a little chip in it that uh, can be traced, and they have to explain to me what's going on with... Uh, Today's uh, technology. Oh, because right. you wouldn't know <laughs> GPS. Because I, I, I don't know about GPS. Yeah. I, that, that's just something oh, that's that's amazing. new to me. And uh, I won't tell you how it turns out. But I will tell you this, uh, as one who just saw it. Uh, this is my kind of movie because when I go to a film, I'm willing, I mean, I'm, I, I may be a rarity. I like to think I'm not, but I think I am. The guy who will just give myself, like, I'm coming to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. You got two hours, go. Or two and a half, or whatever. Right. I, I'll give you the length of the movie. So if it's a slow burn, which this is, right. I'll stay with you. Right. So uh, I want to tell people who may think the first half hour is laying out a lot, explaining a lot, and living in your character a lot. 
stay with it because the last half hour is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> because, you know what I mean? So sometimes the slow burn, you know, will fizzle. This is a slow burn that just lights up at the end and is uh, oh wonderful, is really cool. Wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad it has that effect. Yeah, and uh, I want to mention some other names. Gregory Sims plays uh, your son. Greg, and I thought you're seeing. I thought he was great. Obviously, yeah. Greg's a wonderful young man. He, uh, when I, uh, I don't know how can I explain this. We're members of the same uh, uh, theater company, and uh, Julian had never heard his script. Julian the, Fort, the director, the director, yeah. the director writer, and he had never heard his script aloud. So. I went to Greg and I said, you know, if you uh, organize uh, a uh, reading and get, you know, cast all these parts, uh, you'll get to have an extended audition for this part. Brilliant. And, uh, and Julian saw him and uh, instantly took to him. Uh, and oddly enough, I was actually, I was doing it for Greg, but I also wasn't sure that it would work because in my mind, because he was a cyber criminal, I had a kind of nerdy guy in, in my head. Mm-hmm. And Greg was, he looks like Bruce Springsteen. I mean, he's, I mean, young Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, That's uh, true. So, yeah, I hadn't seen that, but now you mentioned it. So yeah. I wasn't sure that, that it was a good fit. I knew he was a good actor, but I didn't know he was physically a good fit. But Julian jumped at it. And, uh, As a viewer, I didn't go, hey, what is... <laughs> I've heard that before, though, from crazy, particular L.A. audiences who see a movie with a Ben Kingsley and a young actor, and they go, that, that young actor didn't have the nose yeah, that Ben Kingsley has. To- <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly the movie's failing, because you're thinking about that as opposed to something else, but also, uh, let it go. Just have, just, you know, let the characters breathe for a right. second. I also know? like the fact that you um, kind of worked as a casting director in that instance. Yeah. Mm-hmm, very clever. Yeah. Well, I, I, I also wanted Julian to hear it. So right. That, so that he would, if he needed to do another draft, he would know, you know. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, there's no visuals. It's just sitting around a table. Oh, I don't know Julian, but he and I have a mutual friend, um, Paul Osborne, who's been on the mm-hmm. show many times. And, and so uh, I looked up Julian online just to see was because Paul was telling me that he uh, had seen this film at various festivals and things. And when I look up Julian, um, he's got three credits I think he was, like, 20 years ago, he did something, like, a, a small... This is talk. news to me. His credits are <laughs> director, writer, producer, The Midnighters. So the guy oh, badass. came out of nowhere yeah. and made this film that is quite accomplished. It's not only out of nowhere. Julian is an astonishing creature. I... Ever since Big Lebowski came out, I get free coffee every time I step into a Starbucks. <laughs> because... Everyone under 30, and most baristas are under 30, uh, loves Lebowski. They, see, you know, they grew up on it. They yeah. watch it all the time. And so um, I'm very often in a Starbucks, and people get me in, involved in a conversation about film. And one day, this fellow joined in who seemed incredibly knowledgeable. And we got to talking. I think we were talking about Kubrick. And uh, then uh, the next thing I knew, we were meeting nightly at the Starbucks closing time. And then we would jabber, and then we would jabber some more after they locked us out. <laughs> and he came to me one day, and he said, I've got a film script that I would like you to, if I can get it going, I'd like you to play this fellow at the end. And uh, this guy had like a three-page monologue at the end of this film and it was a kind of slasher film is what I call them though it was more psychological than than it wasn't Texas Chainsaw called Massacre it wasn't that kind of thing and uh, so I said uh, sure I'll do it because I like you and uh, I don't need to read it I'll just do it and uh, then he he uh, I, maybe he heard that I'm not really fond of that kind of film and uh the next thing I knew, about six months later, he said, I've written a film for you. Oh, wow. And uh, he had heard me say that, uh, he asked me what I thought was a, a subject that was interesting to me. And I, I said, I think fatherhood and the responsibilities of it are very important to me. I can't stand the idea of abused children. It drives me nuts. And uh, so, 
that's how he came up with this. The fact that we both love Robert Mitchum movies <laughs> and film noir in general. And then this whole thing of father-son, uh, which was all him, because I said that once. I don't even remember it, but I've heard him say that I said it. Mm -hmm. And Julian is a security guard at Paramount. He works there every day. And he wrote this script in his time off. He financed it by going to various friends and various family members. And I think uh, what would be his legacy, what his parents would leave him, he got them to sort of advance him now. Isn't that crazy? Uh, yeah, you wow. mentioned that before the, we started recording. I'm like, I need to hear that story on the air. Oh, that's great. And that he, is cojones right and there. And so he finally <laughs> got together 80 grand, and we had two weeks to shoot. And, uh, and I had no idea what a rental for equipment is, what it costs. I had no idea what it costs for locations. They charge independent people. You want to rent uh, a diner. It's going to cost you the same thing it costs Michael Bay. Yeah. And he's got a $200 million budget, and we have 80 grand. And, uh, and it took five years to go from script to shooting. Then it took another five years from shooting to uh, release because he was going all over town about the uh, things that you do in post. And I don't understand all this, but... Uh, I mean, I, I know about color adjustment, but there are evidently 15 or 20 processes that film must go through after it's edited. And he literally would show the film to people and they would go, I'll do it for free. Oh, wow. Uh, I like this film, I'll do it for free. And we got our music that way. We got all kinds of things that way. There's one young man who every Saturday morning for two and a half years would sit with Julian and they would edit and uh, fortunately the finished product got him a job as, edit, uh, as one of the editors at uh, Walt Disney oh good okay I love so when he, that happens so he got something from yeah. it because he was and doing because he loved it and then something good he, I feel he attracted that to himself by giving him himself that's mm -hmm. great right mm -hmm. and uh, and so that's how it all happened wow and uh, uh I desperately wanted to make its money back so that Julian can pay all of his friends and family back <laughs> mm -hmm. and so that he can make another film. Yeah, exactly. Right? That doesn't take 10 years. Mm -hmm. right. you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I think this is a good calling card to speed that process up next time he's interested. Right. I hope so. <laughs> you know? I hope so. How old was he when he started this whole process? Right around 40. Oh, my gosh. Good for him. So okay. he's, he's probably 46, 47, somewhere him. in there now. All right. Um, now, what is that? Now, we talked about all this time in theater, but film and TV now for you has been around 30 years. So someone comes along who, without any uh, real direct... I, I understand how you friended Julian, mm -hmm. how you trusted him, and how merely conversations with him, you got right. the idea this is going to be a good film. But then when you get, when you get on the set and the direct, how, does, how do you work together? Is it, do, you bring, do, you, do you ever have to bring something that he's not talking about to the production or do you talk things out and come to a mutual understanding about how a scene is going to play out or how does well, it all we, we had to we had to work so fast like Larry Cedar the fellow that, weeks, I, yeah. that I was talking about uh, that, that plays the parole officer uh, we had someone else uh, uh, an actor named Sam Anderson was written in to do that and something happened and I called Larry two nights before he shot and uh, asked him if, I said, you're immensely overqualified for this part, but please. And uh, he said, uh, where do I park and what do I wear? And he showed up and he shot his entire role in one day. Yeah. So this is a long preamble to answering your question, mm -hmm. but, but uh, there wasn't time for discussion. Mm. The, uh, just a lot of trust. We just had to have a whole lot of uh, secondary actors that were good. And, uh, and he trusted that I knew what, I w what we were after. Because, you know, we had five years just sitting and... Uh, 
Oh, that's true. Hibbets. Your pre-production was five years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. That's good. And, you better come to the set prepared. Come on. <laughs> and he had he had uh, tailored it to what uh, to what he thought was my sensibility, you know. So we we might quibble about. Uh, there's a better way to say this, I think, Julian. Uh, could you uh, come up with something, or can I? You know, we had a handful of those, but not much. Uh, mostly, great. it was just doing it. And, uh, well, again, I think the word I said before, I'll stand by. It's a very accomplished film, mm-hmm. especially for someone without you know, a page and a half full of credits. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty impressed in that respect. And I want to make room for one more actor shout-out, Costa Ronin, uh, uh, yeah. uh, who played one of the uh, Russians. Yeah. Well, Costa is, at the moment, probably the best known of us all because he was on The Americans, and it hit big. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was after he had worked with us. But he's... Uh, uh, he's an amazing creature. He's he's a Ukrainian who uh, has traveled the world on a motorcycle, and uh, is very intense. And uh, uh, he and I were the only smokers in the film, so we spent a lot of time going off in corners and sharing cigarettes. <laughs> it's a lot of bonding time there. And <laughs> my son, who was who plays uh, a virtually silent part, but is killed in it. Uh, uh, idolized Costa. He he thought Costa was cool. I think most people think Costa's cool. I think I know who you're talking about in the film, and yeah, mm-hmm. they did a lot of scenes together. Right. So, um, all right. So let me jump uh, now. So once again, Midnighters, the Midnighters, because there's a Midnighters out there. Oh so yeah, the it's Midnighters. A, and you gotta you'll put find the, it. if you're gonna stream it, you gotta put the article in front of it. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that's Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, everywhere out there where you're gonna watch a movie. Um, but let's jump to another big film you've had out this year, uh, A Quiet Place, you were in. I'd like to play uh, one of your great <laughs> lines <laughs> of dialogue from that, <laughs> from that film. Very well done. That that's was, that that's it. <laughs> that's well, otherwise, the movie is a quiet place. But it was, come along and it was quite articulate, didn't you think? I thought. Yeah, thought. and you held it for so long. For those of you who. I think they probably reinforced it a little, uh, bit, a little bit in post. For those of you unaware, that, of course, is the great the John Krasinski, Emily Blunt uh, alien invasion movie that came out in April, where uh, it's actually after years after, or a year at least. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Three years after the aliens actually came, and we now learn to live in a world where if you make noise, the aliens will find you. So That's true. Clearly, you wanted the aliens to you find you. You were found, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's fascinating to me, too, because I, I haven't had an agent or a manager for quite a while now, and, uh, and I've focused mostly on theater where I don't need one. And uh, all of a sudden, my manager, who I had discharged called me and said uh, uh, it looks like they want you to do a film uh, that John Krasinski uh, and I said who's John Krasinski <laughs> and she said have you seen The Office and I, I went oh that John Krasinski and, and uh, I read the script and it was kick ass <laughs> I thought oh man this is a wonderful script and I had just finished doing Lear so I had a beard out to here and the long hair that you see I've kept. <laughs> and uh, so John said, could, I, could you send me a photograph? <laughs> and uh, so I Skyped myself to him. And, uh, and then instantly there was an email back going, uh, welcome to the cast if you're willing. Wow. And, uh, and then I found out that John, like so many people, uh, his college dorm was... Uh, had Lebowski <laughs> playing 24 hours a day. Of course it did. And <laughs> so, it did. And so he, uh, he was uh, a fan of the film. And uh, when they were seeing actors, and they couldn't find anyone that, uh, that pushed the right buttons for him. And so he uh, then went, what about that guy? What does he look like now? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just pure serendipity that I happened to have all of that. And then, uh, and then when I got on the set, I knew we were making a really, really, really good film because Krasinski is, uh, I don't know what he's the next. Uh, 
He's, <laughs> to me, he's like the uh, baby Orson Welles. Because he can act, he can write, he can direct. But now he seems like the next action star with the Jack that, Ryan series. So that he seems too. to fit and whatever mold you need. Because it's comedy, action, and drama, horror. And he also got to marry Emily Blunt. That's pretty that, good. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's doing very well. That's my response to that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he, he on the set, uh, the, the moment, uh, we, because of course he plays the lead in it, we're sitting next to each other at makeup. And uh, he told me that, that he was fond of the Big Lebowski and, and so forth. And then we started talking about uh, Roger. Gosh, now I always get his name confused. Dalkin, uh, Deacons. Deacons. Oh, Roger Deacons. Yeah, I get confused with there's a Roger Donaldson who is director a New Zealand director that I worked with. The Way Out, correct? Yes. We'll talk about that in a sec. Roger and, Deakins, greatest cinematographer, perhaps so we, of all time. So now an Oscar winner, thank God for Blade Runner. Thank goodness. So the two of us were like fanboys talking about Roger. And uh, we never talked about what we were doing. And then uh, I get on set, and he's directing the, the young boy in a, and playing with him at the same time. And they're having something to do under a tree. And then I watched him go cut and stride off. And without so much as changing a cap, he was, he suddenly went from actor intensely doing this to director, now looking for the next location. And uh, the one thing that he told me that was wonderful, uh, at one point in the tiny little scenelet, when the little boy has seen me, I looked in his eyes and went, to make him go away mm. because I was going to scream because I'm suiciding. And uh, John came up to me and he went, you don't even see the boy. You are so devastated by what life's done to you that nothing, uh, you, you can only be involved in yourself. And uh, that was enough. That's all he needed to tell me. Uh, I, he, I, I fell in like four different directions, depending on, because it was going to be in post, the monster flying in, and he wanted those options. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But I knew from watching his confidence and from the fact that he had written the script. There were two young men who wrote a script, but he wrote the script. And, and of course, his acting. Uh, I knew that it was going to be a really, really good film, and that I, he's got an incredible future. I did not know that it was going to go to number one and then fall out when an action movie came back and then come roaring back and be number one again. That, that just never occurred to me. Yeah, it's that rare movie that has legs nowadays. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and he did a great job directing those children, too. Uh, you oh. talk about a moment there, taking with the kid. I mean, I, I grew up in, a, in an era when kids were the death of movies. Oh, <laughs> and and these... somewhere in the last 10 years, kids overall, from Tom Holland and mm-hmm. The Impossible and Spider-Man to the Even kids from Moonrise things. Kingdom to Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. To the, there's so many great child actors out there giving authentic and quality performances. I'm glad this era has mm-hmm. replaced the previous. Right. And, and, and John, in his interviews, will tell you he learned a lot from them. The little girl actually is deaf. Yeah, I knew that. And so he learned a great deal about what the world is like from her, what that world is like. And uh, uh, my the one bad thing was that I didn't get to meet Emily Blunt. Oh, that is a bad thing. I, mm. I got to see her. <laughs> <laughs> Your job. So I got funny. to see her in in a van going to work as I was in a van coming back to work about wow. three times. But but we didn't have scenes together, so there was no reason for us to see each other. She is fantastically talented. And drop-dead gorgeous. Yeah, there's that. Uh, but let's <laughs> do, I'm, jump, I'm time-jumping all over the place. Now we're going to go back to the beginning, one of the first films you were in. We, I mean, you mentioned No Way Out. Right. And I just want to bring this up quickly because it, it's one of the more hack things to say when you're interviewing someone. What was it like working with? Mm-hmm. But I have to ask because you're talking about one of my favorite actors who has ever lived. And I see you worked with him twice, also in Behind Enemy Lines. You got any Hackman stories? Gene Hackman is Gene simply Hackman. the greatest, most malleable mm. and authentic actor on film 
that I think uh, one well, could Well, he saw him in the see. van while he was going one direction. <laughs> no. I remember... I remember the first time I saw him, which was in Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the meeting of the two brothers when uh, Warren Beatty and, and he first saw each other from a distance and then they wind up in a huge bear hug. The interaction between them was so real and the love was so palpable that I had to find out who this actor was. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but uh, I didn't work with him until uh, uh, No Way Out. And, of course, I have no scenes with him, so I didn't actually work with him. But I do remember that the first day I was shooting, he was not shooting that day, but I watched the, um, the rushes from the day before, which, of course, I wasn't in. But he had just learned of uh, the... He had just realized that he had maybe destroyed his career by the accident which killed the girl. Mm-hmm. In and the plot. In the plot. In the mm-hmm. plot. Right. He didn't kill a girl. Either. But he, uh, <laughs> he, he uh, clearly they wanted him to cry. And he, that day, he just, that wasn't happening. And I watched him do all the physiological things that you would do if you were crying. <laughs> That sort of thing, right? And uh, I went, my God, you don't really have to force yourself to do anything. You can, uh, even with the film, because we always thought, you know, uh, stage actors always think film is like absolutely real and therefore not necessarily paced. The editor will do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas on stage, we have to do all that for ourselves. Mm And I was watching him create, uh, convince an audience, knowing that the editor was going to help him, convince an audience that he was in tears when he wasn't. And I thought, oh, okay, he really is as good as I always wow. thought he was. Well, he, next year, that next year, he gave the best performance, I think, of his career in Mississippi Burning. I know he won oh, Oscars he w- for Unforgiven and, and mm-hmm. Popeye Doyle, but... Right, uh, Mississippi Burning performance is just beyond everything. He's right? also wonderful in uh, the oh. conversation. Oh, we could go on. Good and Lord. the and the film of uh, about um, uh, oh Princess Leia's <laughs> life. Oh, Postcards from the Edge. All right. Yeah. Oh, he's great in that. Yeah. Right. That w- all he had to do was be Mister Charm, but he was Mister Charm to the max. Yeah. I'd never seen that side of him before. But there's an interesting thing. He came in. The day that I was shooting, like a, and he's a huge man, very big man, very imposing. And he came in like a, a chastised little boy. He had gone to uh, an uh, automobile road race and uh, was caught on film doing it. And in the contract, you can't do things like that because oh. God forbid anything should happen to you and, and they would have to scrap everything you were in mm-hmm. and so he uh he he was going I, I i only drove the pace car i wasn't really driving and it was so weird to see this enormous man uh so his mama had just slapped oh. his hands <laughs> you know and then i saw him briefly in uh in uh, the czech republic when we were shooting the uh the other film that you mentioned. Uh, Behind Enemy Lines. Right, Behind Enemy Lines. And, you know, there's a, 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 a seal between two doors on most studios where you open one door, and when it closes, then you can open the other door mm-hmm. so that sound can't get back and forth. Right. Well, he came... I, was, I had just opened the outer door, and he came storming through the other door and passed me. And first of all, it was like a great whale just came <laughs> at me. But also he was clearly in uh, irate uh, about something. And uh, I just backed against the wall. I didn't make any attempt to talk to him. Uh, so uh, in the film, we are like juxtaposed, but we never really work together. Mm. Huh. 
he, uh, yeah, the, uh, his retirement made me sad. He hasn't made a film in many, many years. Mm-hmm. But uh, fans still love him to where th- he agreed to take pictures occasionally. You won't see many, but he just took right. a picture recently with somebody. Hey, he looks great. looks like, hey, he's going to be mid-80s at this point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, I just... He's got such a great... I mean, the great part of it is the gift he keeps on giving. I still haven't seen at least 20 of his movies. Right. And so I have that to look forward to. And, you know, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. He, Robert Duvall, and Dustin Hoffman were roommates at the Pasadena Playhouse. And I, I, I don't know that um, other than Buster Keaton when he was alone, I can't imagine... Uh, that much talent in one room. (laughs) Either that or like one of the writing meetings with Raiders of the Lost Ark or that crazy house where John Milius and Palma and Spielberg and Lucas all used to hang out in. Or the writing staff for your show of shows, which was Woody Allen, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks. I mean, it's just uh, Neil Simon. Yeah, the whole gang. Rest in peace. All right, well, let's get to Lebowski. All right, because ah. this uh, the 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 Coen brothers love casting you as a sheriff. They did it in the same thing in True Grit. Right. But now Lebowski. Let me refresh everyone who doesn't know this classic scene with the dude. Mr. Treehorn draws a lot of water in this town. You don't draw shit, Lebowski. Now we got a nice, quiet little beach community here, and I aim to keep it nice and quiet. So let me make something play. I don't like you sucking around, bothering our citizens, Lebowski. I don't like your jerk-off name. I don't like your jerk-off face. I don't like your jerk-off behavior. And I don't like you, jerk-off. Now, the key to the Coen brothers is their rock-solid script, right? Mm-hmm. Is it true that there's just no improvisation and none is needed? Or do it, they work with actors? It's very funny because it looks as though their scenes are improvised. because it lo- So loose, yeah. Because they, they hire excellent actors. And they write very well. I, I have, I have visions of them staying up late at night, talking and talking and talking and going. What if we? And then what if we? Do, and then what? Uh, and then on top of that, maybe we. And then the way that they would say it would be, uh, yeah, but that word doesn't fit. Let's mm-hmm. let's put that word there. Yeah, like arguing for an hour, the or a. Uh, right. What, you know, like right. getting it till they got it just right. The one thing uh, the, it was a there was a funny thing where Jeff was alone with uh, John Goodman. I, I heard this story earlier, uh, later. Uh, uh, Goodman had worked with them a number of times already. And so Jeff turned to him and said, where are the colored pages? Because oh, every right. time you write a draft mm-hmm. or, or a rewrite, <laughs> you, you stick in a different color. And John went, there are no color pages. <laughs> they write it, we do it. And that was a good impersonation of John as well. Uh, John's one of my oldest and dearest friends. Oh, that's cool. Uh, when we were both not making money, we somehow found a way to get beers together. And, uh, and I experienced it. They, they, they don't direct you a lot except in terms of uh, movement. Mm-hmm. But they are uh, meticulous about their scripts. And we did a perfectly good take that any other director in the entire world would have accepted of what you just heard. Mm -hmm. But I said, uh, keep out Lebowski, keep out of my quiet little beachfront community. And Ethan came up to me and he went, there's no front. It's just beach. And I went, yes, sir. (laughs) Wow. So, So the answer to my question is, Yes, they are on <laughs> you for script particulars because they probably labor over it. I have a question for you because I love uh, your delivery of the lines in that scene, but I especially love you just hitting him in the head with a coffee cup. How did you guys block that? I mean, it bounces off his head. Right. I, what was it, a prop coffee cup? How did that happen? It, I don't understand. It was uh, styrofoam. Okay. But it had a smooth uh, ceramic-like coating. Yeah. And uh, so the trick was, like, I wanted to really throw it. Yeah. Like I would throw a baseball. And we found that it would catch the wind. Oh, because it was lightweight. Not not wind, but it would catch the air. Yeah. And uh, because it's creating its own wind. And uh, so accuracy was a problem there. Mm -hmm. So they finally had me sort of throw it, shoving. Just shove it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then it clunked in right It's so funny. 
There is one thing that they, they that uh, at the time I was quite proud of. Uh, they actually consulted me about a shot. Oh, that's a big which deal. I, you know, I'd already I'd already seen their other work. If you're listening to this and not watching it on YouTube, his eyes are wide. Explaining this <laughs> because it is an unusual it's a big deal. And, yeah. yeah, big deal. When uh, after I knocked him out of his chair, I love when you just push him backwards. <laughs> right. That's hysterical too. They asked me, uh, uh, "Where would you see this from?" And I said, "Well, I think I would shoot from his point of view up at me." Yep. Uh, but uh, when I now that I think about it. It's a bit of a cliche shot that we've right. seen a number mm-hmm. of times. Makes and, you look large in the and frame, etc. Yeah. And it causes a kind of fisheye effect. But it's only slight, so in a way it's kind of good because it makes him really monstrous for yeah. a moment. But uh, I'm sure that they already had that shot in mind <laughs> and that they were just being courteous. And also Lebowski's drunk. He's still hung over at that point, so his point of view could be fisheyed if we were right. looking through his eyes. Absolutely. That's so Absolutely. cool. And Jeff is, uh, uh, he's a treasure. Good, because I think he just is wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, uh, when I came to work on True Grit, uh, Jeff has a habit, a wonderful habit that uh, he shares with Lee Marvin, bless his heart, uh, which is that the moment that he sees you, he goes, hi, I'm Jeff. <laughs> like, like you don't know that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right? And, but it puts people at ease. Yeah. And, uh, uh, when I came to work on True Grit, he was finishing shooting for the day when I came in for um, a makeup approval or something like that. And uh, so we were alone in the makeup trailer. Uh, and all of the makeup people were gone, too, because they were on set working on uh, Dakin Matthews, the fellow who played the the uh, horse salesman. And... Uh, uh, he looked at, uh, he said, hi, I'm Jeff. And I said, yeah, Jeff, I know. And he heard my voice. <laughs> oh, yeah. He heard my voice because, I, you know, I'm under yeah. a lot of hair. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I don't know his, his friend. He has a friend, a companion that stays with him most of the time. I guess he's a personal assistant. I don't know. But he's also a friend. And he suddenly screamed his name and he went, Get in here. That son of a bitch that hit me with the cup is here. <laughs> <laughs> and that was great fun. It was the voice. Your voice is very recognizable. It's great. It's like, do you get mm. to do voiceover work? Do you ever? Uh, I've done, I did one campaign years ago. And then because I was on a soap opera and doing nighttime uh, theater, I, uh, I, when, I just didn't pursue it. Mm-hmm. And I really should have because... When you get older, that's like an annuity. Yeah, you can't because outgrow nobody, that. Nobody sees your face. They mm-hmm. don't know how old you are. And it, uh, I have friends who have made enormous amounts of money. Uh, William Shallert, who I don't know if you guys know him, but he played every small town mayor in the history of movies. <laughs> he was uh, uh, Doogie Hauser's father, I think. He was uh, the he was in the Flying Nun. Mm-hmm. He, he's a, a kind of legendary character actor out here, but he was also the king of voiceovers, and uh, he made five or six million dollars a year in the seventies. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Just that's from really voice good. work. Yeah, that's seventies money, kids. Uh, well, listen. If you need to see more of, of uh, Leon, of course, go see the Midnighters, but also. Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. We didn't even get to that, or or you sounds you know you were describing your life in Arkansas, and it sounded like the moving around, and it sounded like the life of Huck Finn. But you can see you in the Adventures of Huck Finn <laughs> from back in the nineties. Was that the Courtney B. Vance, Elijah Wood one? Uh, yes, yeah. and oh, I got to tell you one more story. I'll take sure, that story. Okay. This is about Elijah. Elijah was the most amazing thing to me because you hear horror stories about uh, uh, kid actors and. Uh, he was 11, I think, when, when he shot that. And I flew in to shoot one scene, and uh, I had just had uh, periodontal surgery. So I was in great pain. I was in cocaine and, I mean, not cocaine, codeine. Codeine. <laughs> Big difference. I did not Big say difference. cocaine. I said codeine. <laughs> of course. Yep, let the record show. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there was a moment when things got testy on the set. And 
you could feel tension in the air and Elijah started doing his version of Dana Carvey's version of the first Bush. Oh, fantastic. An 11 year old kid. And he had everybody in stitches. And when he realized that he had dissipated the tension, he quit. Mm -hmm. And I went, my God, he's 11 years old. (laughs) And then he could roll again. And he knows how to run a set. Mm -hmm. The set belonged to him. It was just astonishing. And then when I finished my work, he came up to me and he said, thank you very much for doing our movie. And would you, uh, would you really look after your teeth? Oh, <laughs> oh. Wow. What a great kid. S- sweet boy. That's an That's underrated great. film, too. Underrated film. You should go and mm-hmm. see if you haven't. Uh, or you could see Leon and Silver Bullet, Double Dragon, The Phantom, Men of Honor, and of course, a huge role in Prison Break, but we're not the TV guys, so we didn't go on about that. <laughs> uh, although it is funny to think, like, hey, Leon was in uh, Mission Impossible and The Equalizer, and he was, oh, so tell me some Tom Cruise and Denzel stories. No, no, no. no. the TV show. Mission Impossible yeah. and The Equalizer. <laughs> That's amazing. So, uh, were you in Quincy? Did I see that? I, don't know I, I probably was. I oh don't my remember. God. I was uh, looking at your IMDb I, and I was like, that is badass. D- d- just so you know, I'm, I'm 76. I'm not that old. I did the final episode of Mission Impossible. Oh, okay. I didn't do the, the previous six <laughs> years. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but w- the point is, there is lots out there that yeah. you've done. Check the IMDb and go see something that uh, he was in because there's uh, tons. But I, I will talk one last thing we ask us of everyone who comes on the yeah. show. Right. What is your favorite movie of all time? Oh, God. It changes day to day. But uh, I have a whole list of them, but let's just say. Because the, 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 often the right answer is what's your favorite movie of all time right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not wrong. It changes. The, the, uh, out of the past. Well, you mentioned Mitchum, right? Yeah. So, Out of the Past is my favorite film. Dr. Strangelove is the greatest American film. That's, that movie's so great. It's crazy. And, and Vim Vendor's uh, Wings of Desire. Uh, I, and I, there are a whole slew of films from the late 60s. Uh, uh, Bergman, uh, Truffaut, uh, uh, Fellini, that formed me. They Because they were what I saw when I was forming my notion of what art is. But, uh, and then I have, you know, I have secret, uh, what, what are they called? Se- uh, secret pleasures that you don't tell people. The guilty guilty pleasures. pleasures. Guilty pleasures. You might have secret pleasures. <laughs> <laughs> but I have guilty pleasures that like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang uh, is just delightful. And Tombstone, which, yeah. uh, I, uh, I mean, Val Kilmer in that, uh, just... That any writer could give you a line like, I'll be your Huckleberry. <laughs> I mean, it's just too good. The, so it ranges all over the place. Uh, How does it feel to be in most people's favorite movie? Yeah, we've had that mentioned I mean, in here with guests. so many times people love Lebowski. Yeah. Oh, well. That's 200 right. guests. That movie must have come up at least four or five times. Yeah. Well, I told, you, I, I told you it's gotten me 10 years of free <laughs> coffee, <laughs> which is kind of nice. <laughs> But, you know, it, it also, uh, it opens doors. Yeah. You know, people go, I mean, you can be... People go, I wrote a movie for you, and it's called <laughs> The Midnighters, right? <laughs> but people, you know, people, uh, uh, the... Oh, God, I almost lost what I was going to say. Uh, it it uh, opens, oh, it opens doors because... Uh, everyone knows that movie, and so therefore they will pay attention to you long enough for you to hook them on the next job. There you go. And it, it just took me out of being uh, that guy and being a little more, I think I might know that guy's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Hey, every little bit helps. Right. Good for you. That's and cool. It's Leon Russum. That's right. Mm-hmm. And Russum. Not Russum. Like uh, Russell and not Rossum. <laughs> um, Russum. But, uh, and again, The Midnighters, you can check it out on Blu-ray on Amazon, or it's also streaming there, as well as Vudu and Google Play and many other streaming services. Uh, and that wraps another TMG interview. Uh, follow us on Twitter at The Movie Guys, Facebook.com slash The Movie Guys, as well as YouTube, uh, iTunes, Instagram, and all that nonsense. We put up daily jokes, articles, links, and more. Thanks to Leon. Yeah. Movie.com also for more info. Yeah, anything else you want to plug? What's the show up in Sunland? Yeah, the, for the if you're in the LA oh, area. It's called A Hole in the Sky. Uh, it's by a company called uh, Circle X, and you can find it uh, on your internet. 
Circle X. Circle X Theater Company. About to be the only one. In Sunland, right? So that way they can zero in Sunland, California. And as ever, for us, you can find out uh, everything we're up to, including reviews, articles, and more interviews. Recently, we had Kate Flannery in here, Nicholas Danes, the stuntman, called in, as, as did John Brewer, the British documentarian. We talked about his rock and roll documentaries uh, and many more at themovieguys.net. Thank you, Karen. Yes, Karen. thank you. Karen. Karen. That's all right. Thank you, Karen. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Leah. Uh, Karen and, and Leon. Mm. Put you together. Karen. Thank you. 